Hey, it's Jonah Budd. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life, even when we feel at our weakest. On this episode, we look into the ways that you can better safeguard your mental health and if an emotional sort AI could be something used to help with treatment. We also speak to a woman who lost her daughter to suicide and why that motivated her to help others in need. Do you feel worse or better after listening, watching, or reading the news? Uh, Want to know how, they, how the news impacts you? Give us a call here, 877-399-9898, or send us a text message to the same number. So if you're not aware of what mental health is, because not everybody understands it, right? So mental health illnesses are medical conditions that can affect many different aspects of a person's life, such as their thought processes, their emotions, their moods, their behaviors, their sense of self, their confidence and such, their capacity to connect with others, big one, right? their ability to cope with stress. Um, so there's many different forms of mental health diseases. Anxiety is one, anxiety disorder, which um, people feel overwhelmed by certain things, certain aspects of their life cause them to feel overwhelmed. Chronic illness like bipolar disorder, which involves extreme changes in your moods from one end to the other of the extremes, highs and lows. Something called borderline personality disorder, or they call it BPD. Very difficult for people to regulate their emotions. Lots of uh, severe mood swings up and down, impulsive behavior, right? Unstable self-image. Uh, depression, we all understand that, just feeling a little down, affecting our moods and our behavior, our energy levels, uh, affects our activities, our physical well-being as well. And then we understand that there's eating disorders, people that have problems either eating too much, not eating enough, their whole, uh, you know, their whole concept of body image um, has a lot to do with you know, eating disorders at various levels. People such as myself that have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, that's a person that has repeated or unwanted thoughts or obsessions, um, urges and such from certain situations, compulsions. So for me, it's about keeping things perfectly neat and tidy. For other people, it's opening and closing doors and turning off switches. So that's OCD, compulsive disorder. Post-traumatic stress, we hear about that all the time, right? PTSD seems like everyone we know at some level has some form of post-traumatic stress. Schizophrenia, you see it in the movies a lot. People that have multiple personalities, that's really a mental health a disorder at, at a high level, an extreme level of disruption in one person's life. Seasonal effect disorder, right? When people have uh, different types of uh, mood swings related to the weather, related to the sunshine and so on. And so mental health has a real impact on people's lives and on how they function, how they go forward. And for some reason, you know, some people get stuck uh, in their mental health uh, trauma and their drama from the past and have a hard time, you know, getting past it. So I want to hear from you. Do you. How do you feel about your own mental health as it relates to the news? So that's where we're going here right now. We're going to talk about some methods to safeguard you from the news, from, you know, how you can feel better after, um, after being impacted by what you hear, read, or see, right? So um, what we're talking about is ways to do that. So it's not uncommon, by the way. So it's it's news stories in conventional media often bring out very strong emotions in people, right? Frustration, anger, helplessness, and so on. So frequently when reading, watching, listening to the news about violence often leads to people feeling sad, fearful, uh, somewhat anxious based on anxiety, and sometimes an empathetic response for victims towards the violence. Uh, 
So you have to really manage yourself if you're watching a lot of um, a lot of news reports or listening to a lot of news reports or podcasts or reading a lot of news reports, different articles and such, and learning more about what's going on in the world from a, you know the, some of the sort of ugly stories. You know, we all know that people see, somehow stop by when there's an accident to see how how poorly you know how how poorly someone's made out how how damaged they are how hurt they are from the accident so it's our nature to kind of look at the ugly i'm not quite sure why we're kind of all like to look at that some of not everybody some people like to just drive by close their eyes but a lot of us like to kind of look at the disaster you know the the more heinous so to speak the the more impactful it seems to be to our attention so it's normal to have negative reactions to negative news it would be very unusual if we didn't feel that way, right? If we didn't have some negative responses to negative news or positive responses to positive news, we would be concerned, obviously, of how our emotions are regulated. So ways to help with this type of um, this type of impact on negative feelings from negative news, you have to reach out to friends, to loved ones. Make sure you set boundaries in your conversations to not talk to people constantly about it, not to just have it part of your entire conversation. Texting, talking, blogging, sharing, all about the same negative stuff has a obviously a negative impact on your life going forward. Set boundaries with those conversations and make sure you don't you don't uh, cross them. Avoid coping with negative news or negative feelings. Um, avoid coping with any form of substances. You know we call it you know self medicating. So things like alcohol, uh, drugs of any kind, uh, pills, so on. Uh, some people eat. Uh, to get through to cope. Some people don't eat to cope. Some people are involved in in uh, romantic relationships or sexual relationships to help cope. Some people gamble to help cope. So everyone has some form of at-risk behavior that we sort of use and reach out to, you know, kind of call on when things are tough to manage, right? I had someone call me the other day saying that they're having a really hard time. It was a young kid, actually, 17-year-old that I work with, and he called me. He said he's having a really bad day, and I said, "How come?" He says, "I'm just overwhelmed by all the news. You know, there's wars here, and there's wars there, and and there's fires everywhere. And he's got family that live in in Calgary who are complaining. You know, he's concerned about the fires in in Alberta and and the wars around the world, and famine, and and the cost of living. And just he says, it's just you know, if you listen to all of what's going on out there and pay attention to to the news as a young person who doesn't have a lot of impact on it." He says, sometimes it's really hard to get out of bed in the morning. And I'm like, yeah, buddy, I hear that. So, you know, we talk about making a gratitude list. We talk about making a list of things that you're happy about, things that make you feel good. You know, we talk about doing things like exercise, making sure that you take the time to get outside and to get some fresh air, whether it's winter or summer, doesn't matter. Get some fresh air, right? Get some time to walk around, smell the roses, so to speak. Get exercise. When your body starts to move, your chemistry level changes. And when that chemistry level changes, it has a lot to do with supporting more positive mood. For those of us that have mood issues, like myself, and we don't move around and we don't get active around those ill feelings, they tend to settle in and, and be part of our lives for much longer than they need to be. And make sure you take some time to get away, right? I keep telling this young man the same thing. Take some time to get away from your thoughts. Live in the moment. Learn how to live in today. And don't worry so much about what you read yesterday. Today's a good day for you. May not be for the whole world, but it is for you. So let's deal with the stuff that we can actually control. And if you feel like the world is falling apart at some level and you feel like there's nothing you can do, find something to do. 
volunteer in some way, give back in some way, get involved with a cause, try to help, try to share, try to give of your time. If you don't have money to give, give of your time. Just get involved because then you feel less like a victim and more like an activist. And the more activist you can find in yourself, the better you're going to feel about how you think the world is, is, is you know, forming or, or, or how, how the world is, is faring from your perspective in terms of how you, how you see the world. If you can get involved in helping to change the little bit of world that you're in, the world that you're surrounded by, your immediate presence, your immediate uh, surroundings, so to speak, then you're starting to make a difference. You feel less help, helpless and you feel like there's more chance, there's more hope, there's more opportunity. And that's the way we get around un, unstable mental health is by finding some hope and the, and the feeling of opportunity, right? Talking about right now, we're talking about a family um, where a uh, mom lost, mom and uh, father from the looks of it, lost a daughter to uh, suicide. She was at the age of 20. Her name was Sasha Menukuri. And um, they, as a result of this horrible event. Um, and I can tell you after working with many families who have children, uh, young people and adults who suffer from suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, many of which uh, did not work out well and ended up having to, to um, you know, they, these people have, you know, died by self-harm uh, in the unfortunate uh, aftermath of some horrible mental health. So understanding how, vi you know, vicious this is for a family, how difficult it is for a family to cope. And for a family like like these people who have uh, really gone above and beyond, Lynn Corey, she's the founder of an organization called Sash Bear. Uh, it's a foundation. And um, she is the mother of the uh, young, uh, young woman who uh, took her life. Um, and she's involved in this organization to try to help educate other families other people, because mental health is a disease that affects everybody. They say that, you know, it's, it's one of those games that everybody gets to play, unfortunately. And one third of youth who die by suicide um, have traits of different, different types of emotional, emotional, excuse me, dysregulation. So, it, you know, having some education around this um, is, is just, I think, it goes a long way makes an immense difference in helping people cope and learn and just try to just try to come out the other side, right? So joining me this evening is Terry Crosby. He's the Director of Indigenous Relations at Sash Bear Foundation. And uh, we're going to chat with him about this whole uh, situation here. Uh, Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you so much. So very sad story. Um, but, you know, as, as our show tries to depict, you know, people at their best, very sad story. But on the other side of it, comes a pretty remarkable story um, in terms of the outcome. So, the, you know, the, the fact that uh, there was a loss here uh, seems to have spurred and uh, given um, impetus for something great to be happening. Um, how was the Sash Bear Foundation, how was it founded to begin with? Can you share that? I was going to ask Lynn the question directly, but um, can you kind of talk on her behalf? That would be great. Yeah, I could talk a little bit about that for sure. And after the, the death by uh, suicide by uh, Sasha in 2011, uh, she got together with friends and family. And uh, and it was not too much long after that that she did fi found uh, the Fast Bear Foundation. So it was pretty quick afterwards. 
uh, knowing that families needed help and that they needed help uh, right away uh, spurred uh, this foundation to be created. And uh, down in the States where uh, Sasha was at the time, there, it, it, there was a lot of um, uh, hoops to jump through and a lot of price tags to get help to uh, for her borderline personality disorder. So uh, Land and Mike had created the foundation and they wanted to create a foundation accessible to uh, family members and friends. Um, and so, yeah, to this day, uh, 11 years later, uh, we're here and we're raising funds for families across Canada. Uh, let's have a quick listen here, uh, Terry, to what Lynn had to say at the crowd, uh, to the crowd at the fundraiser uh, recently. Uh, Leo? You are making a difference. You are the ripple effect for your family and for everyone that are surrounding you. So you can hear how powerful her voice was. Um, and by the way, yes. there's, there's some writings coming up here. We'll talk about the walk across the country here a little bit later. Uh, Terry, um, when, when their daughter was diagnosed, do you know if they found, um, was it, were they looking for answers as a family? I, I know it's hard for you to talk on their behalf, but um, can you give me an idea how how they were how they were managing as a family and um, whether the when the daughter was diagnosed, if that gave them comfort or not? Yeah, I'm not fully sure of the whole story that happened down in the states, but you know they they did look for help and it wasn't accessible to them down there. And I know there was a doctor involved with Sasha for a period of time. And, uh, you know, he still is a friend of the family today. Uh, but, you know, it, uh, I think in the end, um, it was just a very difficult situation at the time, uh, trying to get more help for her. And it just didn't, uh, yeah, uh, uh, you know, uh, come into, into existence down there. So tell me about how the, how your foundation, Sashbear Foundation, how are they? How is it helping families deal with, let's say, borderline personality disorder uh, patients with that diagnosis specifically? Is it are you specific to specific dis disorders, or tell us a little bit how that works? Yeah, I mean, for Sashbear Foundation, it is uh, geared towards BPD, and uh, but as as time has gone on, we have learned that uh, you know emotional dysregulation applies to a lot of mental health issues. Um, I've been involved with Sasper for the last five years and became a facilitator not long after that. So I had children, two of my children have uh, BPD. And, uh, you know, it came at a time for us um, that it was very, very difficult uh, in our relationships with the kids because of the emotional dysregulation and the heightened emotions that they did have at the time. And so when we uh, found Sash Bear, it was very, very needed. And uh, it really, really was a life-changing experience uh, for us as parents at the time. And uh, actually one of the first groups uh, that we were in uh, with Sash Bear, uh, Lynn was leading that group. She had come all the way from uh, Toronto to Langley to lead it. And I, I was just so taken by Lynn because of her passion and the fact that she really, really wanted to help families understand, uh, you know, and have better relationships with their loved ones. 
and to, to help them with skills and uh, to to move uh, those relationships forward and to have a, a better relationships. So it has been transforming uh, for me. I think uh, you know just uh, uh, kind of uh, knowing a little bit uh, more information uh, about what my children were experiencing. Uh, parenting style at the time might have been not you know, uh, in line with how they were feeling. And so I had to change my own mind um, uh, in a different way to have a better understanding of how they were um, experiencing emotion. Listen, we're just talking now about mental health issues and uh, we're talking in particular about a family who lost uh, their daughter to uh, suicide, uh, a young woman with uh, borderline personality disorder. We're joined by uh, one of the directors of the organization. Named, his name is Terry Crosby. He's the director of Indigenous Relations with the organization called Sash Bear Foundation. Uh, but before we get to that, just have a quick listen here to uh, what ABC News hosts were talking uh, about um, from the Canadian Dis uh, the uh, Center for Disease Control in the U.S., how they're talking about teenagers and what they're experiencing with mental health. Have a quick listen. The CDC has released new data revealing widespread mental health issues among high school students. Research shows female and LGBTQ students have been hit especially hard during the pandemic. So what we're doing here, we're talking to Sash Bear Foundation. They've got a walk going across the country uh, on May the 28th in Toronto, on June the 4th in Montreal, on June 17th in Edmonton and St. John's, Newfoundland. And there's a virtual walk uh, May 13th to uh, June 17th, Sash Bear Foundation. You can find them online. Terry Crosby is my guest. Thanks for being here with us, Terry. Uh, the stigma that relates to, uh, that plays in the, in the lives of people uh, preventing them from getting help. You know, you have two children um, who have borderline personality disorder. My, my guess is that you're in the Indigenous community. Within your community specifically, by the way, we're doing a, a segment a little later on in the show about uh, trying to get help and the kind of help you need when you come from specific types of cultures, but in your culture, if I'm correct, uh, even more stigma than just the general public, do you think? More stigma? I think, I think that probably is uh, correct. Yeah. Um, and uh, the accessibility to health is getting better. Our mental health uh, uh, programs is getting better. But uh, as, as an organization, we still see a need for it. And uh, we want to create you know something that uh, would help out indigenous communities and uh, and so we are uh, you know very passionate as well about uh, helping our indigenous communities and that's part of my my job uh, at this point in time and so, yep. yes i am uh, an eastern cree from quebec and uh, yeah my children are uh, adopted uh, but they are also indigenous as well Amazing. It's um, I, I guess my my one of the point I was trying to get at is to understand that you know even in specific cultures like I'm in the in the Jewish community here in Toronto um, and even amongst my community there's there's a lot of taboo of talking about the fact that you've got a, a situation with a family and it's almost like you don't talk about your children or your family that have special needs because it's like it's like a taboo like it almost you know affects you as a family. Do you see that as well uh, from your perspective that when you talk about situations with your children or other children that the organization tries to help people kind of look at it as kind of like what's wrong with your family sure yeah for sure i think uh 
you know, when somebody, uh, they see that there's some kind of uh, um, hardship going on in a, in a family and, uh, you know, they hear that there might be some depression or something, there is an instant uh, uh, weariness of, you know, what, what that is. And it's, it's hard to, uh, as a family, and a lot of the families that come to Sash Bear, um, they really struggle even to um, talk with others about what is actually happening, happening within the family uh, dynamic as, uh, as a whole. So we normally in our first session uh, for the programs, uh, we uh, sit around in a circle and anybody that wants to share about their experience uh, in their families um, can. And a lot of the stories that come out of that is that even some of their immediate families don't even know what's happening within their families, you know, in that, in that situation with their children or loved ones. So it is, uh, it, it is, it has been very difficult for a lot of families to come out and say anything about what's happening within their families. So it, there is still a stigma out there as well. Yeah. So give me an idea of, of what the foundation's up to, like, what are they, what do you currently provide and what's the, what's on the game plan? What's the game plan for the future? Yeah, we continue to support families with twelve-week uh, uh, groups. Um, that's one way you can uh, come to Sashbear and participate. Uh, we also have uh, weekend intensives, so you go to an intensive for a weekend, and then a month later you do another weekend. So we have two ways that you can uh, uh, find help with Sashbear. And uh, right now we are doing that with um, Zoom. Uh, we were uh, in person. Uh, until COVID came, uh, and so we are still on Zoom, and uh, we are still finding that our our groups are increasing still, even though we're on Zoom. Well, so if people want to help out or make donations or get involved, uh, how do they do that? Yeah, just go to sashbear dot org, and uh, you'll find a, a page there that has to do with Sashbear Walk. And uh, there's a, a link there that you can donate uh, with. And so, yeah, uh, we are having, yeah, we just kicked off the first walk today in uh, Surrey. And that's where I was. And uh, yep. last year we had a rainy, a rainy, rainy uh, day. And uh, so this is the second uh, walk we've had there. And today it was uh, 30, uh, I think one degree. So it was uh, nice. Great. Yeah. Nice. Listen, we're talking right now about an emotional support chatbot. Yeah. Would you talk to a chatbot? Maybe maybe if you didn't even know it was a chatbot, I think they have to tell you, though. So what we're talking about right now is getting some help from some form of artificial intelligence responder. So we call them chatbots. They're, they're referred to as chatbots. They're basically not real people, but they're they're able to provide a robotic response to people who are looking for some support and help. Uh, in this case, we're talking about mental health support, emotional support. Chatbots is what we're talking about. Want to know how you feel about that? 877-399-9898. Give us a call or give us a text. I know my buddy Ron's listening out there. And he'll have something to say about it for sure. Hey, Ron, thanks for being part of the show with us. Uh, every week. Um, and we definitely appreciate you. So listen, we want to hear what you think. 877-399-9898. As we talk about this, how would you feel about getting your support from a chatbot? So here we're talking about a woman who was on the nerve, on the verge of a nervous breakdown. 
So she moved into a new house. Um, they only found that the place next door was, you know, as they moved in, they found that the place next door was about to undergo massive construction project. So, you know, as they've been living with the constant, you know, sound of hammering and drilling, I, I know what that's like. I, I, I live in a condo and uh, lately in the building, some people have undergone some, some renovations and I work from home most of the time as well. My studio is here, my office is here. So um, I, I hear it right throughout the course of the day. And it can be pretty nauseating if you let it, right? So this person seemed to have, uh, the, uh, the person that we're talking about in this article, seemed to have some issues. Uh, she tried everything, right? Noise canceling, headphones, sauna. She took a sauna, um, thoughts of revenge. And she just couldn't manage it. She, th she, she tried everything. She couldn't get the, the kind of help she needed. She wasn't able to get on, the, on to, to talk to a, to a live therapist. But she found out about this chatbot program, this emotional support chatbot uh, called PI, stands for personal intelligence. And it's designed to give friendly advice. So it's not, it's not meant to replace like people like me, but it's meant to fill in the gap. So I'll tell you straight up that we have in my practice, recoverinhome.com, in our in-home virtual practice, we do have the use of a um, a chatbot program where people can, you know, our patients can dial to dial into a number or or text with a chatbot and just talk about how they're feeling. You know, I'm feeling upset today. I'm feeling overwhelmed today. And the chatbot has all of the knowledge um, as part of its database to give the responses back that someone would need to just de-escalate them, help them feel like they're being heard. Because often in therapy, the biggest part of it is just listening people say to me, what do you do for a living? You must spend a lot of the time a day talking. I spend no, spend most of my time listening because until you listen, you don't know what to say. And if you don't know what to, to say, you can't help anybody. So this chatbot, this PI chatbot has been trained by 600 teachers, including mental health professionals to be sensitive and, and conversational. So do you really care about how you get your help? I really want to hear from you. 877-399-9898. Give us a call. Leo's standing by. Many people just feel like they want to be heard, right? Doesn't matter. And it's sick of being, you know, if you're sick and tired, feel like you're, you know, bothering people by telling them your story over and over again. The benefit of a chatbot is it never gets sick and tired of hearing you. So you can talk over and over and over again. And the, 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 the AI, the artificial intelligence on the other end would never oh, give you a yawn and go, oh, this is boring, right? No. They listen, to, they listen and they respond. So here's her response, right? So this person was getting out there talking about how she felt about this whole situation about the construction and not being able to sleep and not being able to, you know, get any comfort. So the, the chatbot responded like this. I'm sorry to hear that. How long has this been going on? Almost a year, she says. A year? That's insane, the chatbot replies. What's exactly what she thought, she said. You deserve to be able to relax and enjoy your home without constantly being, being bombarded by noise, the chatbot goes on to say. Which again is exactly what I thought she's thinking to herself. It sounds like they're not being very considerate, the chatbot says. Just because they're building something, that doesn't mean that they can do it with any regard for how it affects you or how it affects others. I was starting to like this chatbot, this woman goes on to say. It was telling me everything I wanted to hear and making me feel like I was heard making me feel like I was heard. So the chatbot continued to ask me certain follow-up questions, offered advice on people that I could contact, gave me suggestions on breathing exercises. The woman goes on to say, mindfulness techniques to help me manage my stress, she says. 
And that's all great. But what about revenge? Can you tell me about revenge? And the chatbot says, sadly, I can't. I don't understand. I understand that you're upset, but I don't think that taking revenge is the answer. This is the artificial intelligence talking. I would only add to the negativity of this. It would only add to the negativity of the situation. The bot goes on. Maybe you could try journaling, it says. Well, at this point, the person says, I'm just starting to lose faith then in the in the in the in the chatbot. Try journaling. Don't you understand that I'm angry? Why would I want to journal? So if they're not, listen, they're not meant to be human. They're not meant to uh, to give you the emotional responses that some of us as therapists provide. Some of us don't. Some people say you're not supposed to be emotional as a therapist. I'm pretty emotional in the in the work that I do. I care a lot about what's going on in my patients' lives, my clients' lives, whether I'm coaching or whether I'm doing therapy. But something like a chatbot, you know, it's it's three o'clock in the morning. You want to reach out to somebody. Very difficult to find anybody that's going to be fresh and interested. And chatbots are always fresh. Now, I'm not I'm not suggesting this is the be all and end all. Just a step along the way. You know, sometimes just having someone to vent to, right? It's a big part of it. Just being able to vent how you feel and having some someone on the other end listen to you and give you some form of, of affirmation, some form of, of, of recognition and, and, and making you feel like you're heard and that you're important. The chatbot doesn't forget about the personal side. It just doesn't have the emotional attachment to it. So an emotional chatbot in the future has a tremendous amount of opportunity. There's a situation actually with, um, there's a chatbot used in, um, uh, we're talking about if there's a clip here. Uh, Leo, if you could just play it real quickly here. Uh, special Aflac doc, Duck, if you could have a quick listen here. My special Aflac Duck is a social robot for children with cancer. And really what it does is provide them comfort and moments of joy throughout their treatment journey. So there's a robot used, you know, chatbot used specifically to help young children, and it's designed to make them laugh and smile and feel good, uh, as good as they can, uh, while going through chemotherapy. So there's all kinds of artificial intelligent approaches to helping feel be, people feel better. I I think it's a great plan. Um, if you would have asked me years ago about whether, you know, we have this program, recoveryinhome.com, where we help people virtually, uh, hundreds of people, and they do very, very well, uh, eight out of 10 are very successful over the long run. If you would have said to me before the pandemic that treating people over video was going to be successful, I would have looked at you and said, not a chance. I need to hug them. I need to see them. I need to be in the same room with them. We need to, you know, feel each other's energy. Well, I got to tell you, I, I, I'm very fond of uh, virtual therapy. I'm very fond of the accessibility it provides, how easy it is for people to access, which means people that need help are getting it when they need it, how they need it in a format that's accessible to them. So on their phone or uh, at home or, or on some other device, when they're able to, they can do it from work at lunchtime, it, you know, do it after work. They can still have a life going forward in terms of their work and family. So there's a lot of benefits to it. There's places, there's a requirement for some that require residential therapy. It depends on what it is you're dealing with. But the, the, the use of therape, 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 therapeutic technology, like a chatbot going forward, just took me a minute to find my, my tongue. If I was a chatbot, it would have been perfect, right? But anyway, lots of stuff to talk about, lots of good opportunities to help uh, people feel better. Whatever gets you through the night works for me. Whatever is helpful is, is always a good benefit.
you know, tonight uh, we're celebrating um, Mental Health Month. We're paying attention to uh, to it uh, to be able to share with you. Uh, tonight's show is entirely based on um, mental health issues and, and giving you some tips to help and some stories around people that have uh, done some cool things to try to make a difference in the lives of others. Uh, but, you know, I want you to be able to share. I want you to feel comfortable being able to share with me knowing you're in a safe place. It's just you and me, right? No one's going to know. You can share, you can get on the air, you can give us a call at 877-399-9898 or text if, text if you feel better. I'll get the text right in front of me so I can respond to it and we can deal with it. So give us a call, give us a text, 877-399-9898. What, what I want to talk to you about is how do you manage your stress? Just give me like one of the one or two tips that you use to manage stress in your life. You don't have to be like so revealing, right? We don't have to get into all the personal issues in your life that you may not want to talk about. If you do, great. I'm here. I'd love to chat with you about it. But if you want to just keep it simple and light, no problem. Just share with us. Share with me in particular. Just you and me one-on-one. Share with me how you manage your stress. What do you do? Some people exercise, some people watch movies, some people drink, some people smoke a joint, some people smoke a cigar, who knows, everybody does something different, like to hear from you. But here are some tips and strategies some some of the professionals have talked about uh, sharing according to the um, um, organizations that are expert in uh, stress and stress management, the uh, American um Association of Stress Management, Stress Experts. Um, I'm part of an organization that deals with stress and trauma, uh, an American organization that I I deal with as well. So there are organizations out there that are dedicated to trying to help people uh, get to the best sides of themselves. And here are some of the coping strategies that uh, we as a group uh, recommend. So things that if you're feeling anxious or stressed, uh, take some time out, practice some yoga, listen to music, meditate. If you know how to meditate, if you don't, something you can learn how to do online. Maybe get a massage, learn some simple relaxation techniques, perhaps. You know, step back a little bit from the problem, give you a chance to ch- give you a chance to clear your head. That's also very helpful, right? Eat well-balanced meals. Pretty much every show you listen to, you're listening to me. We're talking about eating, sleeping, and exercise. So eating balanced meals. Don't skip any meals. It's very important. That you um, keep your uh, keep yourself healthy, keep energy boost, uh, boosting snacks and such on hand makes all the. So you want to make sure that you have balanced meals. You want to limit alcohol and caffeine in your life. You want to be able to get enough sleep. Sleep is a very big part of it. Exercise daily, big part of that, right? Learn how to take deep breaths. So work with me on breathing here for a sec. So you inhale and exhale slowly. So inhale slowly. To the count to four, and then exhale slowly. One, two, three, four, same way. You can count 10, right? Repeat and count 10 or count to 20 if necessary. Constantly able to repeat the counting is, is very helpful, right? Slow down your breathing. Start to learn how to count to 10 slowly. One, two, three, four, right? All the way up to 10. Count to 20, count to 15, whatever number helps you relax. So we're talking about eating properly, limiting alcohol or caffeine in your life if you're feeling stressed. Making sure you get enough sleep, very big part of it. Daily exercise, got to do something, right? If you don't have to get, you don't necessarily have to get to a gym. You could be out there doing something else, you know, going for a long walk. That sometimes is very helpful, right? Um, has a lot to do with uh, how you uh, how you burn off energy. So if you're able to figure out ways to burn off your energy, that helps a lot as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Do your best. Instead of aiming for perfection in your life, sometimes okay is good enough, right? Sometimes doing okay is good enough. Perfection isn't something that's easily attained, so, you know, why even aim for it, right? Just do good enough. Sometimes do your very best to try to be the best that you can, and at the end of the day, the best you've done is the best you've done, and that's got to be good enough for today. Tomorrow you can always come back. Try harder, right? Be proud of the work that you do and however close you get to your goals. So don't just wait to achieve all of your goals. Sometimes just getting to them, working on them is enough to celebrate. Accept that there's things in your life that you cannot control. Very important ways to, to address stress is recognizing what part of the stress you own and what part you don't. And what you don't own, you can't control. We own some of it though, right? We're not putting up boundaries. By not putting up boundaries, people can affect us. People affect us in negative ways. It makes us feel stressed or anxious, right? But we can control that by putting up boundaries, by not allowing people to penetrate those boundaries, that sort of that that uh, make-believe uh, you know, body armor. You know, I call it like a bulletproof vest, so to speak, right? If you put up your own personal virtual bulletproof vest, no one can penetrate that. So if you can, you can control the impact that others have on you, but you can't control what happens with others around you. I'll explain that to you again. You can control the impact that others have on you. You can't control what they do, but you can control the impact of what they do and how that affects you. So we, you know, someone says, oh, you know, I went out and drank today because I had a fight with so-and-so and so-and-so, and they always make me mad. All I want to do is drink or whatever, right? I just want to scream. I want to yell, whatever. So at the end of the day, you know, my answer is, well, I, I feel bad that someone treats you like that. What are you doing to prevent them from impacting you? Other thing you need to bring into your life is more humor. I think that humor is a huge part of successful management of mental health good positive mental health, you know, learning how to laugh is huge. Making sure you go to bed at night with some humor in your life. I tell people if you're watching TV before going to sleep, make sure you're watching something for the last hour or so that makes you laugh and giggle, something silly, right? Going to bed with a smile on your face is much better than going to bed after watching someone chase somebody down with automatic weapons and, you know, the kind of stuff I normally like to watch, right? Lots of guns and violence and so on. It's, you know, cops and robbers. But that's not healthy stuff to watch before bed. So bear that in mind for sure. Maintain a positive attitude towards your life. Make some effort to replace your negative thoughts. Negative self-talk is one of the things that brings us down, creates a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, and we can control it. It's one of the things we can control. You know, if someone was bullying you and talking to you in negative ways the way you talk to yourself, you wouldn't hang out with them. So why is it okay to talk to yourself like that? You know, oh, I should have done that. I'm such a dummy. Oh, I should know better. What's wrong with me? No, that's not positive self-talk. Positive self-talk is, you know, I did my best there. I think I learned something. I, this is what I'm going to do better next time. Positive self-talk. Make sure you get involved in some kind of volunteer work, some kind of activity in your community. That where you can make some kind of difference, where you can have an impact on others, and then feel good about that. One of the ways we help feel ourselves feel better is by doing th things to help others feel better. By helping others, it clearly helps us. It's proven over and over and over again. And learn what triggers you. Learn what anxiety, what triggers your anxiety or, or your stress. If there's things in your life that trigger you, obviously you want to avoid them. 
And last but not least, if you're feeling stressed or anxious, you got to talk to somebody, ideally somebody who's a professional. And if you can't find a professional, talk to a friend or a relative, someone you can trust, not to fix it, but to listen. We were talking a little bit earlier here about chatbots and the benefit of having a chatbot in your life because a chatbot can listen without getting bored or giving up on you, right? So very important that you recognize that we have a role in our in our, our wellness. We have a role in our in being able to maintain a healthy um, amount of uh, a healthy mental health uh, life and attitude. But some of it has a lot to do with how you you know process what others say to you, what others do around you. And what others, what other people, imp- the way other people impact you. So, in that regard, you have uh, the ability to be able to put those boundaries up, and that's the way to get some success in your life. You know, the something about one thing about being a broadcaster is um, you're hoping to recognize that you're human. And that, uh, you know, sometimes we cough, we sneeze, we spit, you know, we make mistakes and sometimes don't say the right things. And it's just part of being human. I guess one of these days there'll be a bot in this chair, maybe running the show. There'll be a bot uh, running my show. Who knows? You never know. Anyway, listen, getting help is a big deal today, right? I know you're looking at me, right? Getting some kind of help, getting some kind of therapy is so difficult. It's so difficult. I, I'm the first one to say that, you know, we have a hard time keeping up with the numbers, the demand that we have in our practices. And, um, uh, you know, I see people in residence. I see people virtually. I see people live. Uh, you know, we try to help as many people as we can. I've got a whole bunch of folks that work with me and, and are part of a team. But we can't keep up. And it's even more difficult if you're looking to find a therapist that can connect with you culturally Sometimes it, as it relates to, you know, how you feel, where you're coming from as a therapist, where you're coming from as a patient, um, and you don't necessarily connect. And people who are, of, of, of you know, people who are black, indigenous, or just people of color, especially youth, uh, have a very difficult time today trying to find someone they can connect with. And that's kind of where this, this next couple of segments is about, talking about mental health supports and how often it is, uh, off, how difficult it is to find the kind of support that you need. And it's super important that you have somebody that can understand your experiences and that can relate to you. Sometimes being in a racialized world, it's difficult to find somebody who can connect with you. So my guest this evening is uh, Portia Palmer. She's the founder of Soul Therapy, S-O-U-L, Soul Therapy. And uh, we're going to find out more about their organization and what they do to help with uh, people who are trying to get connected with a therapist and some of the taboos that you need to learn about uh, on, on trying to connect with somebody and, you know, stories that you hear that may not be true. Um, You know, just have a quick listen here though, before we get started to a young man, a young South Asian, I believe it's a young man uh, talking about his desire uh, to get help, but uh, not knowing exactly where to start. Uh, Leo, if you could just throw that up. So I first realized I needed help with my mental health, Probably way before COVID, I realized there are things that I must kind of like speak about and get help based on that. The, the topic of mental health in South Asian households is so limited and there's not much exposure given to it. You don't know where to start. Portia Palmer, founder of Soul Therapy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here with us this morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? 
Very well, thank you. That's so nice that we could share tonight. Um, what are the challenges faced by uh, people that uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, youth in particular, when it comes to mental health? So I think when it comes to youth in particular, um, not only are they facing the broader challenges that come with you know being a teenager in society today, I think for um, racialized youth, one of the biggest challenges is navigating the topic of mental health with their families. Um, for many BIPOC youth, so as you mentioned, the, the term, um, so Black, Indigenous, and people of color, the term that we is often used is, is BIPOC. So for many BIPOC youth, um, the topic of mental health, the idea of talking about their emotions with their family, it's, it's a very taboo subject for many. So I think the biggest challenge they face is, is finding a safe space to be able to talk about their mental health, whatever challenges they might be facing, and to get the support that they need. So where do you think, why do you, why do you think yourself, why, why do you feel that people uh, are looking for therapists who can share a cultural or a racial connection or background? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think it's important um, for many BIPOC youth and, and adults as well to have the opportunity to connect with a counselor who can understand your background, somebody who can relate to your struggles. Um, and, and for many, being able to connect with somebody who's shared living experiences and who has an awareness and understanding of the cultural stigmas that you might be facing, it can go a long way in terms of creating a sense of trust um, in a therapeutic relationship. So it can feel very overwhelming and it can be very uncomfortable to have to explain your experiences over and over and to be left feeling like you're not understood or your therapist can't relate to you. Sometimes that is a challenge that many people encounter um, when you are a racialized person embarking on a therapeutic journey. So what are the educational community, what's the educational community doing to, to ensure that we have more BIPOC uh, based or, or people from BIPOC backgrounds uh, that are coming up as therapists or future therapists, future, you know, social workers, psychologists, and so on. Uh, what, what's the, what's the draw if there is one at, at the educational level to make sure that we're training people who come from various backgrounds such as these? So my my answer to that question is is actually, I, I think that there needs to be more that is done to draw um, racialized therapists to the profession. I think that there are, you know, there's definitely avenues that exist. There are, you know, resources in terms of financial aid. There are many different opportunities. There's many different programs that are delivered in different formats that can also um, increase the enrollment of racialized individuals in um, programs. But from my perspective, I think that there's a there's a reason there's a shortage of, of racialized therapists. And there's a lot of barriers that we face in trying to enter the profession and build a practice and market ourselves. So I don't think enough is being done, in my personal opinion. Well, I want to know more about what you what the the barriers that you're talking about in terms of people trying to enter the profession. I, I like to listen to more uh, of how you feel about that. Yeah, for sure. So I think one of the biggest barriers that um, not only racialized individuals face in trying to enter the the field of psychotherapy, I think it's a barrier that many people in general face um, is 
the cost. Cost is a significant barrier for many. Um, mm -hmm. For specifically with when it comes to counseling, um, you know, there's a lack of income stability when you're entering the profession. You, especially if you're going into private practice, you are building up your clientele. You don't have a guaranteed, you know, paycheck coming in every two weeks. Um, and for many of the jobs that exist in organizations, there's sometimes a very low starting salary. So there's a lot of barriers and it, it is a predominantly white field um, in a lot of ways. So I think those are just kind of some of the ideas that come to mind when I think about the barriers that racialized individuals face when trying to enter, enter the field. We're talking about the difficulty here of trying to find a therapist that you can connect to. Uh, difficult under any set of circumstances, and then becomes even more difficult when you're trying to connect with somebody who's culturally sensitive to what you're doing or has, or, or, or to your life has a better understanding of the kind of life you live or where you came from or your communities you come from. And it's difficult because sometimes you have to understand that in certain communities, certain things are taboo and getting help, you know, getting just getting a therapist if you're in certain communities, um, is just something people don't talk about. And when you do talk about it these days, people kind of look at you sideways still. It's getting better and better. Now you need someone who can really drill down and understand your specific needs. And we're talking about youth uh, that are, are faced, the BIPOC youth that are faced with it. We're talking about Black, Indigenous, and people of color, the young children, the teenagers and such, and young adults that are coming from that community, having a very difficult time finding someone that they can connect with. And according to the organization, the Canadian Psychological Association, uh, they really don't keep track of uh, doctors' um, racial backgrounds in terms of the demographics. We don't know who's from where and what the connections are. There's nothing done in that screening process. My guest this evening, or this morning, if you will, is Portia Palmer. She's the founder of Soul Therapy. Portia, thanks for sticking around and being a part of this. Um, I, do we need to do a better job, I think, uh, the more I'm learning and the more I'm understanding, of trying to gauge information about the kinds of people we're training and if, in fact, there are people that represent as um, a, from a specific culture, a specific background, um, I think it's important that that become a part of what they use going forward. I think that who we are as people and the backgrounds we come from make us better therapists when we're able to bring those to the table. What's your feeling in terms of, um, you know, what's what's the plan you think long-term to make sure that there are, let's say, more Indigenous therapists or more more therapists that come from, from Black communities or communities of, of color or people who come from, you know, Muslim background, Jewish background, Catholic backgrounds, Asian backgrounds, such that they understand the family dynamics behind the people that are suffering and stressed out uh, and dealing with their mental health. What's behind all that, do you think, Portia? I think in order to see a higher representation of racialized therapists, I think one of the biggest, one of the biggest factors is reducing the barriers that they face. Um, and I think part of that also ties into the idea of reducing the cultural stigma that still exists in many BIPOC communities surrounding mental health, um, normalizing, you know, the experiences of BIPOC youth, BIPOC adults, normalizing, talking about your emotions. I think there's definitely still a lot of work to be done. Um, but I think that if we can reduce the barriers that racialized therapists face when trying to enter the field, that's definitely a good starting point. 
Yeah, I would think though that you know, just to makes common, it would be common sense that you'd want to have uh, in in the therapeutic community or in the legal community or in, in really in, in the educational communities that you want we want to make sure that we're really educating and training and developing people who represent the community that they serve. So you know, when you talk about making it difficult for people that are racialized or come from BIPOC um, backgrounds, such that it's difficult to get into these educational programs, um, is the government doing anything? You think, or should they be uh, making sure that we're that we're we're putting people through these programs that uh, and and give like I can't imagine being in a community and saying something to someone like I decided I want to get a job as a social worker so I can help others, how that can be seen with something in terms of negative lenses. Maybe explain that to me a little bit. So I, th I think that to answer your first question, I do think there are um, there are definitely things in place that the government is doing. So as I mentioned, I do think there are resources when it comes to the financial aid piece of things. I think that there are a lot of grants, there's lots of scholarships that do exist. Um, I don't know how accessible that information is to racialized therapists. So I don't know, I can't really speak to that. Um, but I think there's definitely more that could be done in my, again, just my personal opinion. I think there's a lot more that could be done. Um, but I, I think another part of the issue stems from the degree programs that currently exist. Um, I don't believe that they always adequately prepare therapists to work with marginalized clients or racialized clients. I think right. that the programs primarily prepare you to work with the non-racialized community. Um, and so, you know, I've heard from colleagues, I've heard from other therapists in the field that in order to work with BIPOC individuals or racialized folks, they're having to look outside of their curricula. They're having to learn how to um, adequately support racialized folks by, you know, talking to other therapists or, you know, finding resources outside of what they're learning in their programs, uh, which is, yeah, is a problem. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah, it's the problem right there. If it's not part of the regular curriculum, uh, that's where it all begins. And, you know, and having somebody look up, having kids be able to look up to the therapist. And like when I went to school, it was, you know, we still used to, uh, it was like back in the Fred Flintstone days. But when I went to school, um, you know, the psychologists, the social workers, like the, the guidance counselors, we, you know, I wasn't a great kid, but I looked up to them. They were kind of like the cool, the cool teachers, so to speak. Um, I think maybe portraying that role in a, in a cooler setting and better understanding, maybe that would help. What do you think? I agree. I, I agree with that. And again, like you stated earlier, I think it's a matter of seeing more, if, if BIPOC youth can see more people in the profession that look like them, who again, can understand their lived experiences, who can relate to their struggles. I think that will go a long way for sure. You know, I can tell you that in my in my in my years, I've been doing this a long time. Um, there's, you know, I can dozens of people that I've worked with that were patients <clears throat> that then went on to uh, use their lear their life skills, their their learned experiences, and then go to school, become social workers or peer support workers, and and they and they became exceptional at what they did because they were able to bring those learned experiences, uh, those life issues to the table. <clears throat> I think that's really what you're talking about here is having an opportunity to, to do placements when you're in a social work program in environments such as a BIPOC youth environment. Uh, so adding that to the curriculum, I think is where you're coming from, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. So what role do you think communities play in all of this um, 
Portia, like as, as a community, what are we doing, uh, generally speaking, specific BIPOC communities or non-BIPOC communities? What are we, what are the communities, what's their responsibility, do you think, in some of this? I think from a community perspective, the responsibility is, is having resources in place, having, um, connecting people with the information. Sometimes that can be the hardest part is when you are a racialized individual, if you are thinking about starting therapy, sometimes the, the hardest part is not knowing where to start, not knowing where to look. So I think from a community perspective, having resources in place, providing that information, access to resources, um, directories, things like that, um, not to mention, you know, programs. I think there's a number of things that can be done, but I think it's just helping people figure out where to start and how to guide them on that path. I'm talking to Portia Palmer, founder of Soul Therapy. Give me an idea what Soul Therapy does. Sure. So I operate my own private practice here in the city of Calgary. Um, so Soul Therapy is focused on working with individuals from the BIPOC community, both youth and adults. Um, again, just working to give racialized folks a safe space to talk about their mental health, um, a safe space to explore their experiences and, and help them to get the support that they need, whatever that might look like. 